We will now be pleased if you'll give your undivided attention to our brother John as he speaks to us upon the theme, Fools for Christ's Sake. My dearly beloved brethren and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, well, we've arrived, brethren and sisters, at the end of this very powerful section of this epistle, and I trust for all of us it has proven to be interesting and, of course, very much in the way of exhortation. For none of us, brethren and sisters, are exempt from those thoughts which intrude into our minds whereby we differentiate between ourselves and ecclesial life. And though we may not join party factions, yet pressures all around about us sometimes force us into grooves and channels in ecclesial life which we can't altogether break out of, though we might even desire it. And of course these feelings, these sharp feelings which do arise, are in themselves precious, which as I say, force us in one direction or another, and we've got to find some way to break out of that syndrome of things and to spread our influence wherever that might be acceptable, for good and for power as far as the gospel of God is concerned. It will be necessary as ever that if before we consider chapter 4, just to again very broadly pick up the threads of the thinking. And as we do this each time, you'll notice we get broader and broader as we spread this out, and it becomes easier to follow. And the thinking goes something like this, that these party factions had arisen, as I mentioned before, because the Corinthians had an inferiority complex, which was only another manifestation of pride at any rate, and they lined up behind big men and basked in the sunshine of their human ability and status. The Apostle Paul was to show them that God's strength was made perfect in weakness, not in the things that they admired, that is, intelligence for its own sake and status for its own sake, but that God, by their very choice of themselves, was indicating to them that he viewed the matter quite differently. And that therefore they should see that humility was the great hallmark of spirituality. Furthermore, he went on to say in chapter 2, not only was it folly to follow party leaders, but they had to rise above their inferiority complex and to realise that even the most humble brother and sister can understand the Bible. Because as he pointed out, it wasn't a matter of the application of the eye or the ear or the heart of man, but the revelation of God. And there's nothing magical, brethren and sisters, in that matter of revelation, as we mentioned before. There's nothing extraneous from the Bible that Paul is dealing with. He's not saying that God will some, in some way endow them with a knowledge without any application. What he is saying, that all that is necessary to understand the Bible is to love God, to love Him to such an extent that we want to know about Him. There is a burning desire to know about Him. And anybody who pursues a course of life with that attitude, they can't but help come to understand in measure the things which God has revealed to them that love and fear Him. So simple was Paul's message, brethren and sisters. He went on to say, however, that he could only speak to, to people 
those spiritual things who had been developed to a spiritual maturity. And unfortunately in chapter 3 he points out that they had so become embroiled in their factions that they had retarded their spiritual growth and he wasn't able to talk to them like grown-up people. Consequently, there could be no progress in their life as far as spirituality was concerned. And he finished that chapter by telling them again that the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. And therefore, if they wanted a status in the world to follow the worldly wisdom, they'd never understand God's truth. And it would be far better for them to become fools that they might be really wise in the things of God. And it was on that note that he finished that third chapter and now he's going to show them in chapter 4, brethren and sisters, that the world considered him a fool. And he delighted in that title because he said, as far as I'm concerned, if the world thinks I'm a fool, let them think it because I'm a fool for Christ's sake. And now we have a chapter before us in which Paul's own superlative example is set before them as one who suffered the title of a fool gladly, that he might be wise in God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he said, how do you see me? How did they regard him? How did they regard Apollos? Well, chapter 4 in the first seven verses, he speaks of how they should see and regard him and Apollos. This should be their attitude of ecclesial leaders. We use that term advisedly, of course, because who are leaders but the servants of the ecclesia? And he said, this is how you should account of us. In verse 1, let a man so account of us. The RSB says, this is how you should regard us. Now they looked particularly at Apollos and saw in him all that they wanted to be. Brilliant, educated, equipped, capable. And they saw in that, brethren and sisters, something to admire. But he says, look, that's not how you should see us at all. And he gave them two figures. Oh, they're absolutely beautiful figures of how they should view these servants of the ecclesia. He says they should see them as the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now we read those words, of course, they read them very quickly, but there are two very graphic figures there, brethren and sisters, of how they should see ecclesial servants. Now you take the first of those figures. It's an unusual word, really, in the Greek, but it literally means an under-rower. Now you've seen a picture, perhaps in your lifetime, of the, of the ancient galleys that used to ply the oceans, and when there was no wind... All the slaves would be chained up in the hold below and they'd, there'd be several tiers of rowers. When there was no wind blowing, they'd get going and they'd crack the whip and beat the drum and to the rhythm of that drum and to the crack of that whip, the slaves would pull together this huge galley to bring it into a situation to catch some breeze where they could take the sail up again. That's the figure that he's using. And of course you can imagine several rows of the tiers of, of rowers as they went up the hold of the galley the one down the bottom, whose oar would be deeper in the water, would be the fellow doing nearly all the pulling. And Paul says, that's where I am, down the bottom. And the Corinthians were up on the deck, enjoying the view. 
enjoying life and basking in the sunshine of the glory of their newfound intellect. And there's poor old Paul pulling the ecclesial ship down below, a slave to the Corinthians. Yet they would have considered him the master of the ship. But he said, you should see me as a slave down there, pulling for dear life to keep the ecclesial ship going towards the kingdom of God. That's how they should see me, he said. Oh, they never considered him like that at all. That would be offensive to the Corinthians to consider Paul like that. Do you know, brethren and sisters, such was their attitude that later on in the second, epi- second epistle, do you know they were offended because Paul wouldn't partake of his expenses in that ecclesia? You know, that was their attitude. When he said to them, look, I don't want my expenses, which of course he had a right to take and which they'd all agreed to pay. And when he refused to pay it, they were outraged. Not because, you know, it was an insult to them, but they thought it was below his dignity. He ought to take the money in recognition of his position. And they considered him to be rather lowly to refuse that money and got offended about it. See the attitude they had towards him. So it wasn't only a question of looking after his material needs, but that very money was a recognition of his position. And Paul says, I wouldn't have a bar of it. And he worked with his own hands to avoid taking it. Because their attitude towards that was so wrong. And you can see the problem that had arisen there. And there's no way that they could see him at the bottom of that boat, pulling it along the, uh, along the water, as I say, they'd rather look at him as being the captain of the ship. No, he says, you've got a completely wrong view of ecclesial servants. Now the second figure is a beautiful figure. Stewards of the mysteries of God. Now look, literally, this is what this figure is. The word stewards is a house manager. It's a common word in the Greek here that's used in the New Testament and the figure is often referred to in the scriptures of truth. You will remember the parable of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the nobleman who went off into, on a journey, and he left the affairs of the household in the hands of his chief steward. And the office of the house manager, brethren and sisters, was a highly responsible one. However, of course, he was very much under the jurisdiction of the house, of the house owner. So Paul says, you consider me the boss of the house. Oh no, I only work for the boss. But he had an extremely important job. Now, do you know what the job of a house manager was? And there are plenty of traditions about these things, brethren and sisters, authenticated they are, and you can quite readily find out the position. And it's very interesting to see the job of this house manager. And their job was primarily to take charge of the family of a nobleman, and they were held responsible in every respect for the upkeep of that house and the management of that family. And particularly, they had two particular responsibilities. The distribution of the food of that house according to age and diet. And they were, of course, also managing the monetary affairs of that family. And when the the master of that house came back, they were answerable to him for that, as the Lord's parable indicated. Now, Paul saw himself as a house manager of the mysteries of God. Now the mysteries of God, of course, were the things of the Word. 
the secrets of the word. They weren't mysteries in the sense of Gentile philosophy was mystery. But they were secrets which God would reveal at given times to those servants who sought the answers. And the cupboard was full of those secrets. So Paul, as a house manager, according to the grace of God given unto him, had filled the the ecclesial house cupboard full of food. But he said, unfortunately, as far as the Corinthian household was concerned, the master had gone away into heaven itself. He would return at a given time. Paul was left in charge of that house. And when he went to the cupboard to feed the Corinthians, every day he had to take out a bottle of milk. But in that cupboard, brethren and sisters, was all the savouries of law and prophecy, of psalm and precept, of proverb, of types and shadows, glorious things, tasty things, wholesome things. But every day he had to get milk out of that cupboard. And so he told them, you look upon me as the boss of the house, that's my job. And he had to deal that out. And you know, the Lord made reference to this again in Matthew 24, when he spoke about that servant who giveth his household meat in due season. And that was another reference, of course, to the house manager. Quite a few times the Lord refers to this office of the house manager. And how important it is for us to realise that, brethren and sisters. Not one of us occupy the position that Paul occupied. If he was a mere under rower and a house servant, what are we? We're members of that household. And yet in a sense, we're all stewards of the mysteries of God. We all have that responsibility. And as we look upon each other in ecclesial membership, we have the care of one another, do we not? We are aware of absentees from the meeting. We try and find out where those people are and what they need at that time. And we dispense accordingly. We send to them a brother or a sister whom we feel would be ideal for that situation. That's what they need at the time. Later on we might send somebody else a bit better equipped in another facet of truth because they've grown to a certain point where we can take something more. And if we exercise care like that, gentleness and care, we can wean people back to the meat of the word, brethren and sisters. We can all do that. But we should see each other as servants of the ecclesia. No doubt about that. But of course, this figure of house manager naturally leads Paul straight into another consideration. And that is, the Corinthians stood in judgment upon him Those who were not of the Paul party, they didn't even consider him apostle. In the second epistle again, he said, ye seek a proof of my apostleship. They didn't believe he was an apostle. And they stood in judgment of him. Some went so far as to say that he was an abortive. That was the term he used himself. We know the other apostles were with our Lord Jesus Christ. We know they have the credentials of an apostle that they must continue with the Lord during the days of his ministry and have seen him before and after resurrection. For how else could you be the witness of a resurrection of a man you didn't know before he died? You'd have to know him before he died and after he rose so you could say, yes, that's him because I recognise him. So they had to have those credentials. And along comes Paul sometime later. And they was whispering around the ecclesia that though the apostles were born apostles, he was an abortive. And so they were whispering the slander against him, standing in judgment on him. But now he says, look, I consider myself a servant of God, the master of the ecclesia. 
I don't stand at your bar of judgment. And so in chapter 4 again he says, Moreover, it is required in stewards, in verse 2, that a man be found faithful. By whom? Not by the children of the house, but by the master of the house. So he says, But with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you. That didn't upset the Apostle Paul, brethren and sisters, in that sense. It upset him, of course, emotionally, as far as their love towards him was concerned. But as far as their judgment was concerned, he scoffed at that. I'm not a bit concerned about your judgment, he said, because I'm answerable to the master of the house. I'm very concerned about his judgment. I'm not concerned about yours. So he says, I'm not concerned about your judgment or of man's judgment. Now the word there for judgment is a word which really should never be rendered judgment. As a matter of fact, the Greek word is about 355 times used for the word day. And this is the only place where it's rendered judgment. So what he's saying therefore is this, as the margin indicates, it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you or to worry about man's day. Because there's coming a day, brethren and sisters, when man's day or judgment will pale into insignificance. So who cares about man's day? They may even convene an ecclesial meeting to pass a motion of censure against Paul on a certain day. So be it. I'm not concerned about that day, says Paul. But he was terribly concerned about the great day. When the master of the house would come back and he would have to answer for the, ex for, for the exercise of the office of the steward, brethren and sisters, to every man, every master, says the apostle in another place, the servant must answer. Every servant's got to answer to his own master. I'm not concerned, he said, about your judgment. As a matter of fact, he went on to say this, brethren and sisters, in verse 4, For I know nothing by myself, yet I am not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. Now that's not a good translation, really. What he's saying is this. I know nothing against myself. But that doesn't really mean that I'm justified, because I don't really know. But he says, he that will finally judge me is the Lord. Now let's be very careful and clear as what Paul really means. When he said, I know nothing against myself, he did know a lot about against himself. He's not talking about weaknesses in general. Because if you remember that monumental chapter of Romans chapter 7, he spoke about all manner of concupiscence. He spoke about the things that I would do, I don't do. He talked about sin that dwelleth in him, that he was a wretched man. So he knew plenty against himself. But you see, he's talking here in the context of his stewardship to the Corinthian Ecclesia. And he wasn't aware that he'd ever shirked a single duty in that regard. As far as being a steward of that Ecclesia was concerned, he had done everything that was humanly possible to do. But he said, I may not have done all that I had to do because I really don't know. And I may not altogether be justified. You know, brethren and sisters, that's the words of a very honest man. A very honest man. You know, we use an expression 
It's really a stupid expression that we use when you think about it. I used to use it one time. I have never, no, I don't consciously use it now. I might subconsciously use it or unconsciously use it. I don't consciously use it. But for a person to say, I've done my best. Now let's be honest. Your best. Who could ever know that? Who could ever know that? You know, you say you've done this and you've done that, you couldn't do any more. You find that circumstances of life come upon you and a year or so passes and the next year you do more again and the year after more again and more and more and you keep stretching and stretching out on the work of the truth. Whenever you're going to say you've done your best. Paul wouldn't say that. He said, look, I'm not aware that I have shirked any responsibility in feeding the ecclesia, but I don't really know that either. But what I do know is this, that if there has been any lack in my service to you, I won't answer to the children. I'll answer to the master of the house. And so as stewards of the mysteries of God, therefore, he felt, brethren and sisters, he was exempt from their judgment, but he was answerable to the master. Now that's how they should see him. Now do we see ecclesial servants like that? Well, we should. It's a privilege to serve God, brethren and sisters. It's a privilege to serve God. And we should see it as a privilege to serve God. We should never see ecclesial officers, be they arranging brethren, right down the scale to whatever office we have in the ecclesia. We should constantly regard that as a great and a glorious and a wonderful privilege to serve God. And to so project that view into the ecclesia that the ecclesia can use us up however they think fit. If they want us to stand on our head, we will stand on our head. Whatever the ecclesia wants us to do, we will do within reason. We won't do things that are wrong. But if within the orbit and the ambit of the truth, doctrinally and ethically, whatever the ecclesia wants, we will willingly and gladly do and consider it an absolute privilege to do that. That's how Paul saw it. Let them use me whatever way they want. They want me to row on the bottom, I will row on the bottom. And if there's others up above me not pulling their weight, that's their problem, not mine. I will row and I will row and I will consider it a joy and a privilege to row that ship. And you know, brethren and sisters, it's a wonderful thing to get to a frame of mind where you can think that way and you're above problems in the ecclesia. And if anybody's not pulling their weight, if they're whispering behind your back, or whatever they're doing, that is their problem. It's got nothing to do with you. Because the day is coming when the master of that house will come back and we'll stand before him and we will answer to him and him alone. And that's all that matters in life. So let the ecclesia consider us their servants. So said the apostle concerning him and Barnabas. So he told them judge, to judge, judge nothing before the time. And then he went on to say this in verse 6. He says, And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes. In other words, he had to use Apollos' name and his own, not because they were divided, but because the, the ecclesia was divided. And so the figure was transferred to him and Apollos. It didn't apply to them was only a figure 
The ecclesia was divided. They weren't. You know, brethren and sisters, this would indicate, of course, how great a man, a man rather, that Apollos really was. And there's no way that I could ever believe that Paul wouldn't have told Apollos he was going to write that letter. I mean, to give you a poor human illustration would be a dreadful thing, wouldn't it? If I was to go home to Adelaide, considering there were problems here, which I don't, because I don't know, and if I were to write a letter to the recorder and, and using Paul, stand his names, and I'd say, well, look, these things I've transferred in a figure to Brother Stan Mansfield and myself, and he didn't know about it. He'd feel nice, wouldn't he? Well, this is a letter of rise of the Ecclesia, and he's named in this thing. There's no way that Paul would have done that. And I no doubt whatever that he'd gone to Apollos, they'd worked that matter out, and Apollos had agreed that that name be used. And Paul would have said, look, Apollos, I love you in the truth. We work wonderfully together. We don't work in the same field, but your work's important. And you know mine is. Shake hands on the right hand of fellowship on that. But unfortunately, they don't see it that way. Now, I'm going to name you. Don't worry, Paul. You go right ahead. And when those names were named in that ecclesia, brethren might have taken the opportunity, if they were nasty enough, to try and divide those two great men. There's no way they could divide those two men. You know, brethren and sisters, I remember many years ago, in my own ecclesia, when there was another brother, a brother of very great capabilities, and a brother of wonderful faith, a brother I have a towering admiration for, and the matter is mutual. He's moved on to another ecclesia now, and he's a wonderful brother there, and we're still like that. But I well remember a, a brother turning up at our AB meeting because there was a minor point of difference between us which was going to come up that night. And he came here and he says, I've come to see the fight between Martin and this other brother. That's what he said. And he found himself wedged between the two of us, much to his anxiety. But that's the sort of mind that would divide Ecclesius. He didn't count on the fact, brothers and sisters, that whatever differences we had, we respected each other for them. And we'd worked that out before we got to the AB meeting because we knew the attitude. And it fell flat on his face because he didn't understand that the Spirit of Christ dominates in ecclesial life despite what smaller minds might think. And you know, this was a case in point. If the Corinthians ever felt that there were nasty minds, and there were nasty minds, there was in that ecclesia, brethren and sisters, one brother. He's named individually, not named actually, but he's referred to as an individual. Let such a one think this. And he's called by the apostle, the Satan. He is the Satan. And he was there to divide that ecclesia. But there's no way he could divide those two. Because diverse as they were in character and in the exhibition of God's work in them, one in one field and one in the other, they were co-laborers together with God. And as long as an ecclesia is held up by men of that calibre, it'll progress. And I say this, dear brethren, and I say this as an observable fact of human behaviour, the most stable of ecclesias in my experience in life, and I do observe these things very carefully, not critically, but I do take everything in, and you will find the most stable of all ecclesias who has an AB that the ecclesias can't divide. 
And whatever pettiness may arise on the floor of any meeting, where human beings are gathered together, we will always get it, unfortunately. Whatever pettiness might arise on the floor, if they know that there is no way to divide that arranging group, then that ecclesia will progress. But if they can divide the people who have the administration of that ecclesia at heart, then you've got all manner of strife. Just the same as if a child can see a bit of an opposition between mum and dad and drive between that household is going to be tossed into a whirlwind of trouble. But if mum and dad are like that, the child will submit because they know there's no way around that. And I believe that when this matter was transferred in a figure to Apollos and to Paul, brethren and sisters, that that matter would have been very, very clearly set before them. And so that there would be no way. And so the apostle says, he transferred for their sakes. What for? That they might not think of men above that which is written. How far off the ground would you have to rise to get above that which is written about man? Well, you can take a multitude of expressions in the scriptures concerning the status of mere man. And perhaps the best one to illustrate Paul's point is that he is of the earth, earthy. So when we start thinking above that which is written, we'd only have to get a minute fraction above the earth. And we're above that which the scripture says concerning man. And that's what Paul said. Don't you think of Apollos and I of anything less or more than mere slaves? Just slaves we are. When you think above that, then you're above the Bible in what it says about man. But you see, he points out, brethren and sisters, that the reason they thought like this was because they were puffed up. Now, I mentioned before that the Corinthians' problem was not raw pride in the sense of arrogance and pride. It was a pride, of course, always covered up with this veneer of what we like to call an inferiority complex, which is a very nice name for that terrible crime of people who would be if they could be. But everyone says, oh, he's a very humble brother. He's only upset because he sees other people in the ecclesia lording it over the ecclesia. That's what's upset him. He's a very quiet brother. He's a very... Look, he'd love to do it. And that's what's eating him out. And that's what was their problem. And they were puffed up one for another. And with all the so-called inferiority complex which they displayed, there was the real problem. And he transferred that in a figure, brethren and sisters, to him and Apollos, that they might learn in them. And yet they were not puffed up. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Look at that problem. We can see it because we've got the eyes of the Bible. But take that away. Plunge yourself into the situation and see Moses up there before the people, ascending and descending the mountain of God, the law in his hands, giving the voice of God to the people, the manifestation of God shining out of his face. Clearly the leader of that nation and these humble brethren, all Yahweh's people are prophets. 
Why, brethren, we're all in the truth. God's called us all out of Egypt. Why should one man lead the nation? They were humble, brethren. Yes, they would love to be where he was. The earth opened up and took them. And that's what the scripture spoke concerning man. They were not only of the earth earth, they went down beneath it. That's what the scripture, brethren and sisters, says concerning man. Now Paul says, don't you think of us, of anything more than that. As far as their human status was concerned, that's what it was. And of course, coming to the point now where the apostles saw them puffed up one against another, that pride was really at the basis of their problem, he launches into a very passionate dissertation whereby he shows them the situation which they had taken in their mind, that they were trying, brethren and sisters, to anticipate the kingdom in their own arrogant way. They had come into the truth and they believed the ecclesia had set them on their feet now as kings. They were going to reign now. And they didn't see the necessity to become slaves of Jesus Christ before they could become kings and priests in the age to come. Oh no, says Paul in verse 8, you're full, you're rich, you're kings. You want everything now. Ecclesial life to them was a manifestation of their status now. And they didn't see it, brethren and sisters, as a testing ground. Well, says the apostle, if you're full, if you're rich and kings now, you've got to be kings without us. And what a telling point that would be, brethren and sisters. What a telling point that would be. Go ahead, enjoy yourself then. Fill ye up your measures. Parade around as if the status which God has given you is the ultimate, if you like. Be kings in your own right and boss each other around. Do what you like, but do it without me, because I've got to wait. I've got to wait. This is a true saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that if we suffer with him, we shall reign with him. I've got to wait. But you go ahead. What a telling point that was, brethren and sisters. Every Corinthian eye would be riveted upon the example of the apostle. And they would know that without him, as the instrument of God's grace in their life, they wouldn't have been there. He'd taught them, hadn't he, that through much tribulation we must enter the kingdom of God. He'd taught them that before the crown comes the cross, they had to be crucified with Christ before ever we could rise in the fullness of life. He taught them that. And they had taken charge of their own affairs and forgotten all that and were charging on as if the kingdom was here and now. Paul says, go right ahead, but you have to leave me behind. Oh, that would have been a telling point, brethren and sisters. Would have been a very telling point indeed. And he says in the end of the eighth verse, I wish you did reign, he said. Because they said, when you really reign, we will reign with you. But it's only when we're really kings, when God glorifies us with that kingdom. So he said, you're full, you're rich, and you're a king. Well, he says, we occupy somewhat of a different position. And now, brethren and sisters, comes a very, very graphic description of the relative positions of Paul and the Corinthians. He says in verse 9, he says, For I think that God has set forth us, the apostles, last, as it were, appointed unto death, 
For we are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. If you look in the margin with the word spectacle, you'll read there that the word is theatre. And refers, of course, to those vast amphitheatres open to the sky with their tiered seats, looking down upon the arena, where every eye could see what was going on there. And there was the apostle. He was trying to convince the Corinthians of the terribleness of the attitude of mind, brethren and sisters. And Paul was ever the master of painting vivid pictures that would be impregnated and burned into their conscience. And he says, you're full, full of the good things of life. You're full of riches. You're kings. Well, where do you find those people? They occupy the top seats in the amphitheatre. Sitting down up there, taking up two seats for the size of them. With all their pomp and ceremony. All the giddy pomp and ceremony of that. And they sat there, brethren and sisters, lords of all. And Paul says, where am I? Well, we're made a spectacle. And the entertainment of those kings, full and rich, was that the criminals were dragged out there on the arena in an exhibition of savagery. And they were turned loose and made a gazing stock, first of all. The idea was to parade them and they'd be made a gazing stock. Laughed at, belittled, and the frenzy of the crowd would be whipped up as these were criminals were whipped around the arena to make a gazing stop and then publicly executed some of them and the rest left there and they released the, the wild beast who ripped and tore them to shreds Paul says I'm out there and you're up there that's how you want it that's where we are today and that's how you should look upon me not as a dignified human being exalting oneself in his ability to speak Exhibiting, brethren and sisters, a great complexity of philosophy wrapped up in skillful wisdom. But a poor beggarly criminal, rag and torn down there by the beasts. A spectacle to those kings, full rich, sitting up there in the tiered seats of the amphitheatre. And here's the apostle passionately appealing to them to consider the relative positions in which their mind had taken them. He says, we're fools. But you're wise. We're fools for Christ's sake. But you're wise in Christ. We're weak. But you're strong. You're honourable. We're despised. And you know what he was doing, don't you? He was retracing his steps to that first chapter. God hath chosen the weak things the foolish things, the despised things. And they had chosen the honourable things, the wise things and the strong things. And they were waiting, brethren and sisters, for the day that he spoke of in this chapter. And you can see the warning in those words that as the spectacle went on of the poor fool down there being laughed at, derided and scorned by all the great wisdom of this world up there what if Jesus Christ came and caught them in that amphitheatre and the relative positions were like that oh what a shameful day that would be wouldn't it 
when he would take those poor wretches, fools for Christ's sake, and then they would be full, rich and kings. What about those up there, brethren and sisters? The day of judgment, the day of fire, of indication and wrath, coming at all his holy angels, taking vengeance on them who know not God. What a terrible thing it would be to be caught there with an attitude of mind like that. And though they were all in the ecclesia at the time that Paul wrote, yet in their minds they had taken up those relative positions. And this is what the apostle told them. And he went on with his figure. In verse 11, he said, Even under this present hour, in other words, we're not seeking to anticipate the kingdom, even under this present hour, we're hungry. We thirst. We're naked and buffeted. We have no certain dwelling place. Never forget, brethren and sisters, he's describing to them a man that they admired for his human dignity. But this is what he sees. And these weren't just fanciful things. These things now he's talking about are not the imagery of the theatre. These were facts of life. And moving away from that which was, of course, the imagery of the theatre which really didn't exist in literal principle, but only in their minds. And in his mind, he now moves on to realities. He had been hungry. Paul had been thirsty. They'd stripped him and beat him with rods. He had no certain dwelling place, brethren and sisters. He was stoned and dragged outside their cities. He was kicked and beaten. He had a flea for his life. A night and a day in the deep in hunger and thirstings, in danger here, danger there, danger in the world, come into the ecclesia, danger amongst his own brethren. They were facts of life, never mind about the theatre. Yet here they were glorifying in men because of their dignity. Oh, what a tragic thing. Look, he said to them as he went on with this illustration, we labour working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless. And he was reviled by the Corinthians for working with his own hands because it was below these dignity they said to take expenses and he therefore belittled himself and it really shouldn't have done that because he was a man of great prestige and he should recognise that and take the money in recognition of his position and he says and when I work with my own hands I was reviled for doing even that and they were the facts of the matter being persecuted we suffer it being defamed we entreat and then he makes a couple of other points brethren and sisters, which are again imagery of the situation in which he was in. He says, we are as the filth of the world and the off-scouring of all things. Now the two Greek words that are chosen there are sacrificial words. And according to the, to the traditions which have been, of course, authenticated by the historians, those words have been identified with two sacrifices which were often made by the heathen. The first word is only found actually in the Greek text in the Old Testament in the Septuagint version. It's only used once here by the Apostle and the only other occurrence of it in the whole Bible is in the Greek version of the Old Testament where in Proverbs 21 it says that the wicked are a ransom for the righteous. And Paul saw himself or rather he saw as the world saw him as a purgative sacrifice which the wicked in the world were taken out according to the world's estimation of wickedness and sacrificed for those who were deemed righteous. Well, Paul says, I'm that sacrifice. 
I'm wicked. Kill me. Do what you like with me. But you want to reign now with Christ. Well, I'll die for Christ. And theirs was a heathen custom, brethren and sisters. Their mind had got them into heathen customs. They didn't realize the import of what they were thinking. And the other word, off-scouring of the world, is a redemptive sacrifice. And it referred, they say, to a heathen custom. And what they would do is that in certain big cities, known for their immorality, their vice and the corruption, they would keep a man, a wretched criminal, they'd lock him up for a full year, and they'd feed him and look after him. And according to the way in which they looked after him, it would seem that they were dedicated to his well-being. But they did it for a purpose. Because for 12 months of the year, they fed and clothed that man, but at the end of that time, they took him out, nailed him to a, put him to a stake, and lit him and burnt him alive for the sins of that city. Paul said, that's me. That's Apollos. That's Cephas. And it was certainly Christ. Kept by humanity. That their own sins might be forgiven. For this poor wretch, as a human torch, should be fried before their very eyes. That's the sort of life, brethren and sisters, that Paul woke up to every morning. I die daily. Ever thought about that? You know, some of us, I hope most of us, have been engaged in very intense ecclesial work. Sometimes engaged in very intense and emotional ecclesial problems. Sometimes we ourselves are the object of that problem. Who knows? Who doesn't know? The feeling of a new day coming and the sun lighting up the room the eyes snapping open to the day and the realisation of another 24 hours is there with all that it, can, it entails and the stomach just turns right over. I've got to die today. You know, brethren and sisters, we do that once or twice, I suppose, in the course of a lifetime. Paul woke up to that sort of life every morning of his existence. I die daily. And he saw himself there as a poor wretch, just kept up for the purpose. But somewhere along the line, an ecclesia would have to see him die for them to live. He'd have to go and belittle himself. And you know, it's a wonderful exercise to do this. I did this for a study once. I never forgot it. It made a tremendous impression upon me. I made a list of all that Paul said bad about himself. It's an incredible list. You'd be absolutely amazed if you made that list of the things that Paul said bad about himself. Everywhere he went, he died before them. Opened up all his weaknesses that they might live. He was a poor wretch suffering for everyone, brethren and sisters. What brother and sister here hasn't taken comfort many times in their life from what Paul said about himself in Romans 7. Lifted up ourselves by the bootstraps because Paul said, O wretched man that I am, and taken comfort that if the greatest man that ever followed Jesus Christ could say that, 
well, we can press on. What if he'd never said it? What if he thought to himself, I better not say that because, look, I've got a certain prestige here and if I lower myself, well, then they won't listen to my expositions. So I'll withhold that. I better not tell him that. I'll give him the impression that I've got a will of iron and nerves of steel and I'll capture their admiration. We're to perish without that chapter, brethren and sisters. But he opened up his heart and said, I'm a wretched individual. And this is what the apostle did here. And you know, how do you feel now that I've told you all that? We feel pretty ashamed, don't we? But he didn't say it for that reason. See, he goes on and he says, verse 14, I don't write these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I want to warn you. See, he didn't write them to put them to shame. He didn't want that at all. But he wanted them to see that there was a course of life that they had to take. And he loved them. He loved them, brethren and sisters. And because he loved them, he told them those things. True love, that is. A lot of people are condemned for manifesting true love. And a lot of people are lauded for talking about love, 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 love. A love that casts a blanket over all the ills of the ecclesial world as if they never existed and encourages people to continue in the service of Christ at their present state when it's absolutely disgraceful. And that passes current for love. God's love. This is love. To tell them exactly what where they stood. To try and induce in them, brethren and sisters, an attitude of mind where they hang their heads and feel wretched. Yet he says, I didn't really do it for that. But I want to bring out of that an attitude of mind that you'll look back at me now, not as a dignified speaker, not as a man with status, not even now as a slave in the galleys or a steward of the mysteries of God. But the last figure, brethren and sisters, the last figure. I'm your father. And that's the last figure, isn't it? Has to be. Because that's where it all ends, with the father. And so all the through the various figures he's taken them till he comes to that one. For ye have ten thousand instructors. There are brethren everywhere who'll accept ecclesial appointments on the study class to instruct you. And they'll do it with diligence. And they'll do it, brethren and sisters, with great zeal. But not always with a view to correcting children. Perhaps to excite, to inspire, to appeal, or even maybe to display. But where are the fathers? And what's a father's job, brethren and sisters? should be of course it's not always the father of course is always called in isn't he as a last resort and poor old mum can cope no longer the father is called in for a last resort and he may not enter in for a long time as he watches his wife guide the house but ultimately he's called in 
and the sternness has got to be there. But it's done because he loves those children. You've got 10,000 instructors, but you haven't got many fathers. I've begotten you, he said. I have begotten you through the gospel. Those are words, brethren and sisters, that's language. That's the language of the Father himself. He has begotten us unto a lively hope. So Paul's expression, I have begotten you, is trying to project towards them the image, not of him as a father only, but he is but a shadow and a reflection of the heavenly father. The instructors, the boy leaders, that's the word pedagogos in that verse. They had 10,000 boy leaders that could lead little children to school and back again and teach them the what be the first principles of the oracles of God. But where's the one that oversaw their whole life? And you know, really what he's saying in a very nice way is this, that of all the party factions that existed in Corinth, they didn't really need Cephas. He wasn't the type for Corinth. He had work elsewhere, as great as he was. Certainly they didn't need Apollos because as great as he was, they took out of Apollos' teaching that which Apollos, Apollos never intended. And what he's trying to say in a very nice and diplomatic way of all the factions that exist here, really, I am the one that you really need. And he wouldn't have said that in as many words, but he said it in a very nice way. And though the many of them, brethren and sisters, had very strong feelings against him, he says, really, it's me you need. Because he had that overall insight of that ecclesia that nobody else had and he knew the history of it and he knew the needs of that place and so he appealed to them as a father now I'm going to show you something that's really wonderful it is to me in verse 16 because he was their father having begotten them to Jesus Christ through the gospel wherefore I beseech you he says be ye imitators of me the Greek word means imitators be ye imitators of me for which cause I'll send you Timothy oh brethren and sisters look have you ever made a study of Timothy I don't intend to do that now so don't worry about the time I won't do that but I want to tell you something about Timothy I tell you something about Timothy I don't believe that there is a character in the Bible that is so clearly portrayed as Timothy we know more about Timothy in his personal detail than I believe we perhaps know of any single character in the Bible now, you, that's a big statement I know that I'm not saying that the record of his life is longer or there's more detail concerning what he did because there isn't but it's personal details the details of his person you could get a canvas and paint him. And Paul's going to tell them that I'm your father. I'm asking you to follow me, imitate me as a father. And I'm going to show you that in action. Because I'm going to send you Timothy. And look what he says about him, brethren and sisters. Who is my beloved son? And the emphasis there is on the word is. He is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways 
which be in Christ as I teach everywhere in every ecclesia. Now you, you let the import of those words sink into your mind. Do you think I'm exaggerating those words, young people? You young fellows that are sitting here, full rich and kings today, listen to this kid. Look here, here was a boy that went all through the world. And Paul said, you watch him. Because you'll see him do things and he will be an exact replica of me. And he'll do it in every place, in every ecclesia, at all times. It wouldn't matter where that boy was. Paul knew that at every moment of his life, he would do exactly what Paul would do. Now I want to tell you why. Here's the reasons why, and these are scriptural reasons. We won't turn them all up. Why would a boy do that? Because he was faithful in the Lord, of course. But there are a lot of boys faithful in the Lord that wouldn't do that. There were other factors in that boy's life which made him do that. That's why Paul was going to send him to Corinth. He was the ideal boy to send. And I'll tell you why he did it. Because humanly speaking, he was nothing in himself. He was a little boy who used to sit in a home with grandma and mother and all the old ladies would come here and I'm quoting scripture, brethren and sisters. Everything I'm going to tell you about him is scriptural, absolutely authenticated and you can't gainsay it. This little kid would be in this room, all the old ladies would turn up at the house and they'd all sit around him and, in, and exhort him to do his daily dozen to build up his little muscles. He was always crying. He was scared stiff of everybody. He had constant trouble with his stomach. He was a health fanatic because he wouldn't dare drink anything else but water. And he considered himself to be a total nondescript. And that's why he imitated Paul. Because he didn't have any status, any ability, any eloquence, anything at all to commend him to this world. And of him and his family alone it is said that in the walls of that house Paul found unfeigned faith. And the word unfeigned is a common word used by Paul but never linked with faith except in that house. And the word unfeigned means it's anupocritus without hypocrisy. And you open that door of that house and see a dear old grandma a younger woman, her daughter, and this little skinny little fella sitting there, brethren and sisters, reading the Bible with faith, and there's nothing hypocritical in there. And that's why that kid was sent all over the world, because Paul knew he couldn't do anything else but act like his father, because he considered himself nothing in this life. And if ever the Corinthians needed him, they needed him then. You know what Paul said about him? He said, I haven't got a man in the world like him. In one respect. He had a superlative virtue, brethren and sisters. And he didn't know he had it. He'd never be aware of it. Paul had to exhort him to strength and to courage and not to be ashamed. 
constantly exhorting him not to be ashamed. He was ever shrinking back and frightened. And Paul had to constantly bring that little boy forward. But he says, in one respect only, there's not a man in the world like him. And that is, who will naturally care for your state. For all think of themselves and not the things which belong unto Jesus Christ. And when that little fellow walked into your meeting, he, if you said to him, oh, you're Timothy, you're quite an important little fellow. Who, me? And he'd be there, brethren and sisters, for your sake. And he would do that, says Paul, naturally. And he said, I haven't got a man like-minded. And you know what the Greek word means? The soul, the word suki, the soul, is very often used in the scriptures with a total being. You read that. It's very interesting. It's used for the whole being. And Paul said, I haven't got a man one soul like that. And he just went to the apostle and lost himself in Paul. And Paul took him into inside of himself and there he had him in his heart. And do you know what he said to one ecclesia? He said, I'd like to come to you and find out how you're doing. I think I will. I'll send Timothy. And he said to them in words that are not in the authorised but which are in the Greek that when he comes and reacts I'll feel it. Not that he would literally do that, of course. When Timothy came back and Paul would say, how did you find it, boy? And he explained it to Paul. Paul would know that that was his feelings exactly. Oh, I tell you what, you've never seen it like it. And do you know something else? Do you know when he called him one soul with himself? It was in Philippians chapter 2. And down that column of your Bible, it speaks about, let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus, who though he were in the form of God, thought it not a thing to be grasped that week with God, and being made in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, and made himself of no reputation. And down that column it speaks of a son, who being found in fashion as a human being, weak and sickly, realising what he was by nature, no reputation emerged into his father and down that column of Philippians chapter 2 Paul says as a son with the father he has served with me in the gospel because he had no reputation and that's brethren and sisters why when Paul says I want you to be imitators of me as a father as a son with the father and for this cause I'll send Timothy and he wouldn't have to go to Timothy and instruct him what to do now be careful, do it this way or that way. He would leave him completely to himself because he knows that he would do exactly what Paul would do. Because brothers and sisters, and particularly young brethren, he had no reputation. Twelve years after that boy was plucked out of the arms of his mother and grandmother, Twelve years or more after Paul wrote to him and said, let, let no man despise thy youth. You work out how old he was when he left Lystra for the big, wide, cruel, harsh world. Brethren and sisters, that sort of exhortation, he didn't have to come. Timothy wouldn't have to come with eloquence, would he? He wouldn't have to come there like Apollos or even Paul himself. He wouldn't have to open his mouth. And when he went, 
Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he says, See that he be among you without fear. Don't frighten him. And they would have seen, brethren and sisters, in him that God hath chosen the foolish things of this world, the weak things of this world, and things which are despised hath God chosen. And he would have been the living embodiment of it. And he would have been, brethren and sisters, a walking example without opening his mouth. And that was the end of that section. I'll come shortly, says the Apostle. There are some who say that I won't. They think I'm frightened. I will come unto you if the Lord will, and will know not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. I'll come, he said, after Timothy, and I won't judge according to your eloquence. My judgment of the ecclesial progress will be according to power. That is, it's not what a man says eloquently that matters, brethren and sisters, it's how it affects you and me. If we go away from a special evidence and say, well, he's a brilliant speaker, and that's all we say, then that's speech. But if we go away from any special effort, though the brother may not be terribly eloquent, if we go away and say, oh dear, I've got to do better for Christ, that's power. And Paul says, I'm coming to Corinth and that's how I'll test the matter. You choose. What a wonderful way to end the epistle or this section. You choose. You choose how I come. With a rod, correction, harshness, or with the spirit of power, of love and meekness. You know, brethren and sisters, when little Timothy walked in, goodness me, there was love and meekness written all over him. And into that ecclesia, in that little personality, that little insipid fella, into that meeting walked the tremendous lack that was in that meeting love and meekness so Paul is saying in effect I'm going to follow him you make your mind up what do you want you want me to come and correct you in very harsh terms and bear in mind Paul had more powers at his disposal than mere words I'll come with a rod or would you like me to come like Timothy did in love and in meekness my dear brethren and sisters as we come to the end of this section and we depart this day. May our studies together have helped us all in our thinking toward the kingdom of God. We don't want to be full now and rich now and kings now, any one of us. We are, we prepared to be made fools for Christ's sake. If the world out there says to our young people, and I appeal to you young people, you think we're coming into the truth, your mates at school will laugh at you, let them laugh. Let them get up into the top seats of the stadium and look down upon you and laugh. Let them see you as a queer Christian sect. Scoff and scorn as they will. But if you're a fool, you're a fool for Christ's sake. That's all that matters in life. And when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, if we're down the bottom of ecclesial rungs, right at the water level, pulling for dear life, while the rest of them up the strata have lesser work to do, never mind about that. For we shall go to the top, brethren and sisters, according as to the grace of God.
It's a tremendous privilege to serve God in the truth. And may it be, brethren and sisters, that as we strive together, perfectly joined together in the one mind, that we will all do so in the spirit of Christ. What is the solution to your problems? I don't doubt you've got the visions here. If you didn't, you wouldn't be an ecclesia of God in this age of generation. I don't know what they are and I don't want to know. But I know they're here, they're everywhere. There's only one solution. If every member keeps his eyes focused up here Sunday morning on those emblems, keeps his eyes right on them, he'll have no problems. Because on the table before us, brethren and sisters, is the one who is uniting us all. And yet I've seen ecclesias divided over an argument as to what, how that table should be served. And if you want a practical example, here's one. I've seen ecclesias divided over whether we should have a jug or glasses. I wouldn't care if you served me the wine in a paper cup. We want to do dignity. We want to do all things decently and in order. We want to be dignified before God. But if we were in a circumstance, brethren and sisters, where we had a habit in our hand, I wouldn't care. But brethren, argue over that and create division over the table which is there to bring them all together. We're crying out loud. These are the issues of life. And instead of looking at those minute details, of opinion about this and that. If we saw that bread transformed into the body of Christ, not as the Catholics, but in the spirit of our mind, and that wine, brethren and sisters, the precious blood of Christ as God's own child who died in agony to bring us into him and to the Father, we would never think like that ever, ever, ever. And as we strive together to be perfectly joined together in the one mind, Go home today and think about the pettiness that may be involved here, there or anywhere and be determined that come tomorrow every member of the Burwood Ecclesia and all our Ecclesias everywhere that has heard these studies be determined that tomorrow, brethren and sisters, we will lift up our eyes a bit higher. We will see the objective of the Kingdom of God, the glory of our Heavenly Father, the majesty of His Son and being so overcome with the awesomeness of that to see everything else take its proper level and not the thing of men above that which is written and to be fools for Christ's sake that we may be, brethren and sisters, ultimately, in the divine sense, truly wise.